0: And Welcome to Late Night Talks, a weekly podcast talking to science fiction and fantasy authors about their creative process and how they got started in publishing. I talk to traditionally published and self-published authors about their influences, their inspirations, and their latest work. This episode, I talk to science fiction author Jeremy Zaal. His debut novel, Stormblood, came out from Gollants, and the sequel, Blind Space, was recently released. Jeremy is currently working on the third book in this series. This interview was originally carried out in January 2021. So first question, normally, I kind of know the answer to this, but there's actually about a 20-year age difference between you and me. I know I look very young, but (laughs) who were some of your influences getting into science fiction and fantasy, whether it's TV or film or games or anime or or what? You don't look a day over 30, Stephen. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm a bit older. And now. I
1: am, yeah, I guess, look, I, unlike a lot of people in the genre, I didn't grow up reading science fiction or fantasy, but what the definition of growing up probably differs for some other people because I'm 25 and I'm, quote, unquote, still growing up. At least uh, I hope I am. <laughs> um, or I hope I'm not. Like, I hope I have grown up by now. You know, yes. who knows? Yeah. Um no, I, I think I read a lot of crime and thriller stuff and young adult okay. stuff when I was younger. So um, my mum would, you know, we go to the bookstore and I would get, you know, Michael Grant and I'd get Artemis Fowl and I'd get a bit of Stephen King and um, stuff like that. But I don't think it was until I was in high school and I stumbled across Game of Thrones um, because I'd seen the first season when I was 16, 17, when I was way, way too young for it. And I convinced my of someone to get me the first season, and so I started reading the books. And so I'd I'd read the whole Song of Ice and Fire by the time I was seventeen. And I think that was the first time I really thought about fantasy as fantasy. That I am reading a genre that is predominantly inherit, um, you know, the tropes involve dragons and castles and feuds and n- names and magic systems that sort of thing. And so I branched out to Sanderson. I branched out to uh, Abercrombie, a bit of Robin Hobb, that sort of thing. And, but um, I think that I was always like science fiction a little bit more and nice. I was always a fan of Halo. And so when I finished high school, I got an Xbox and I started playing Halo games and then I got all the Halo novels. And some of them were written by folks like um, Tobias Spackle, Greg Bear, Karen Travis. Um, so I started reading their books. Yeah. And so I think it kind of took off from there but I do think a lot of it was to do with video games as well. Like, you know, uh, Hey, you know, again, Halo, Deus Ex, the Witcher, uh, Bioshock, that sort of thing. Like I, I was very, very much influenced by video games. And, um, because I, again, like I never really thought as of genre as genre, right. I just played whatever I wanted, Mm. but you know, I got to start, I would play something like mass effect. And like, I really do like the idea of, you know, all these different planets and alien species and, ancient tech weird technology and so I think it just kind of gone from there. But um yeah, my I think my influences are definitely not what most people would call classics. Yeah. Um yeah. yeah, it was definitely much, much closer to what is being written now. I have never read any of the older stuff, like deliberately, partially now, like Heinlein, Asimov, um Clark, I've never read any of them. And I quite frankly I don't think I'm missing out on too much. Uh, from the some stuff I read, and I don't not to say that they're bad writers; that would be ludicrous. But in terms of what I would like to write and the sort of stuff that I'm trying to pull from, yeah, I think I pull a lot more from more recent. So, like, yeah, like you can. There's a lot of discussion about how Ian M banks kind of subverted space opera genre and the new wave and turned flipped space opera tropes on their heads. Yeah, uh, that sort of thing. And I think that that's a lot of the stuff that I were appeals more to me. Right. So, you know, like, so basically, you know, modern influences, what I would say influenced that book as well would be, you know, Richard Morgan, you know, Alter and blew me away when I read it when I was 18. It just, you know, this is what I loved on a sentence level. Like I really love the, the, the moody city. I love the, the prose. I love the, the texture of the writing style, mm. you know, Ian and banks for his, you know, he had this massive, universe to play around with but he also had a very precise wit about him and you always got the sense that he was just having fun and that's what you really want you just feel like you're being taken on a ride throughout the galaxy but he also had a very underlying clear message um but i really but that's the sort of style i really like uh but probably no one has influenced me more than pierce brown uh the author of the red rising series like no one is able to do Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. No one, like not so much the first book, but especially the second and third, no one is able to do, you know, these big space opera tropes uh, and that, you know, has some quite brutal themes and moments of shocking horror for the main characters, the sort of stuff that gets done to them, but it still manages to have warmth and heart and friendship. And it still manages to have very well-drawn characters and that's very hard to do and, and humor as well. And that, that balance, intimate balance probably has influenced me like nothing else I read. Um, I read Red Rising when I was about 15 years, not 15, um, when I was about, I think, 18, uh, 18 19, and I was just, done, didn't know what my terrible YA fantasy book was doing wrong. <laughs> and I, I read that. We all have trunk novels. Come on, we all have Trump novels. Oh, yeah, and I absolutely. read that book, and it was invigorating, and it was driven, and it was, you know, it was like being kneed in the balls every 50 pages. Um, and, but it was in present tense, it had a ya ish feel to it at the start. And so I was a bit thrown off initially. But as I got read it more and more, I kind of realized it got the magic of it. And I'm like, this is the sort of stuff I want to do. Mm. This is what I want to write. And so the year after that, I started writing uh, Stormblood.
0: Wow. So we'll, yeah, we'll come thanks. on to that. But um, interesting because I started playing Mass Effect. Uh, when it came out, and I'm currently doing a replay, again, of of one to three. Um, and it's that thing of, you've, you play the first game, it's really good, and it's got really good characters, really good world building, really good relationships, because that's the other thing that, you know, you have had in games before. It's not to say, oh, they did it for the first time ever, but it was the way they did it, the way that every decision you had, had a consequence, and even you go into the second game, and it begins with, you know, spoilers for those who haven't played it, they kill the main character, and you're like, wait, what? And it's just, it, it's it'd never seen anything like that before. And that's like the the prologue before the game even begins. You die, and you're like, what the hell? I'd never seen anything yeah. like that. And then everything gets carried forward, and you're thinking, I haven't seen this before, where the consequences of that, int- normally games are so much on rails that you go yeah. to the next one, and it's just like a reset button, and then you carry on again, and it's like... I've never seen this before.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I never actually played Mass Effect 1. Uh, it came out when I was 12 years old. Mm. So don't think I was doing much of that. But um, yeah, it was definitely a few years later when I played Mass Effect 2 that it just, it just grabbed me and um, it just, it, you just, it's a bit of a cliche, but there's some stuff about games you just know is good. Yeah. And although I wasn't quote unquote a writer, then I recognized You know the world building and the characters, even the dialogue. It was also tight and it was also polished. You could you could tear so you could tell care had gone into crafting it. Yes, and uh, and that is rare in a video games, especially where so much of them is is capital driven and it's about selling millions of copies, not you know make not producing a good product a lot of the time, especially with AAA games. And so it was a blast of fresh air to play something like Mass Effect
0: mm.
1: and get that sort of experience
0: that you usually want to get in a video game. And, the, I mean, the cast behind the voiceovers, you know, you've got people like oh. Martin Sheen and Tricia Helfer, and you're like, what? And, you know, that's and all these Michael crazy. Hogan and yeah. just really big names and stuff, which, which kind of leads me on to, did, did film and TV play much of an of impact in, in feeding into your kind of influences? Because I know you mentioned Blade Runner before.
1: yeah. Well, I um, I have a degree in film studies and creative writing, so I
0: I okay, a little bit.
1: Three years of of watching indie movies and art house cinema somehow paid up in the end. Um, No, definitely. I not so much in themes or anything because none of that is exclusive to cinema. But sometimes I'll just have a very, very specific image in mind or tone or mood, and that is something that some films are very good at. Uh, you know, you get a director like Martin Scorsese who can have just Robert De Niro walking down the street in Taxi Driver, and you have the perfect timing of the music and the cinematography, and there's this grittiness under the nails, dirt under the nails feel to the whole thing that you just cannot get um, in prose in the same way. Uh, and so I tried my best to emulate it. Uh, my favorite director of all time is Denis Villeneuve, who again directed uh, you yeah. know, Arrival, Blade Runner sequel. Um, and I've seen every film he's done at least twice. And I love that he has a slow burn to his worlds, but it's so there's a mounting dread and you're not bored for a second because you have to know what's going to happen. And you follow the characters through every beat and every line. Mm. And I love that, that texture to it. Like when you know, in Blade Runner, every single frame of that film, the Blade Runner sequel, it feels lived in. It feels real. You, know, you just want to eat the cinematography with a spoon. It's great. It's um, one of the
0: best cinema experiences of my life was seeing Blade Runner oh. 2049. If I'd seen it at home for the first time on my TV, as good as my TV is, I would have wept because it, as good as it is, it can't get over that experience of you seeing it on a massive screen with massive sound. And it, the yeah. sound is so important in that film at certain points. It's designed to overwhelm you. And my TV speakers are okay, but the kind of mm, there's no way compared to this sound where it's Absolutely. destructive and it's invasive, and you can feel it in your chest and the danger and the emotion. And then in that cinema, and as yeah, Denis Villeneuve, I'll watch that guy direct a paper bag. He's so yeah, exactly watching do paint dry anything. But um, Sicario isn't science fiction in any way, but the scenes, no. some of the scenes in there are so memorable the way he's filmed them and the way he puts it all together and the way even way puts the camera during like a fight scene and he moves it around you're watching people you wouldn't normally see that like i can't really see what's going on you're not supposed to but it's the way he controls the camera even in a movie like Prisoners, uh there's a scene where hugh jackman
1: has paul dano's character up against a wall yes and he's planning to kill him with a hurt him with a hammer and he starts smashing the basin and it's so visceral and the camera does not flinch Mm. and it feels like it should but it doesn't like you're forced to watch everything you know that that's a tightness that's a control over uh, a craft that i love another great great film that does it is there will be blood uh directed by paul thomas anderson you know there's not a single scene in that movie that doesn't have utter precise control you know the scene where um Daniel Day-Lewis is on his knees confessing to Paul, the, um, Paul Dana's character about, um, basically, you know, confessing that he f- abandoned his son. Yeah. And every single time he says that he's abandoned his son, he gets louder and louder and louder and more visceral and more visceral. And the camera starts creeping more forward and forward. It's the dread in that is palpable and nothing's happening. No yeah. one's in there. And yet you f- it's got such a, a precise feel to it. Um, there's a really great film I watched when I was at university called The Assassination of Jesse James. By the like um Robert. Yeah, coward of Robert Ford. And that's great because, you know, it's by the same cinematographer as Blade Runner, uh, right. Roger Deacon. Yeah. You know, he did he worked, he's done all the best. He's like, did everything. He's like, done everything. He did nineteen seventeen. He did nineteen seventeen as well. Yeah. Um, and so in that film you can it's a. it's a Western, it's a revisionist Western. And that's not really a genre you associate with Mood or beauty, but you really do have these shifting landscapes of snow, and you have these characters standing in profile against these beautiful landscapes. And you can all, and it's a bit, it had almost Cormac McCarthy texture to it, Mm -hmm. and you just get, you feel like you've gone on a journey by the time it's ended. On then, that film doesn't have a huge amount of dialogue, and doesn't have a huge amount of plot, but you feel like you've seen a world, yeah, and that's something that's very hard to do. And that's so I definitely drew on cinema and TV, mostly in cinema, uh, and approach to the writing. Even if it's just a character standing, you know, in the half in darkness, half in light, with wind blowing in their hair, like just to be able to get, you know, and you just to be able to get like a a feel to it, a texture. You'll notice in a lot of Jabba Crombie's books, a lot of characters will stand in a very specific way, or they'll go down to the hunches with their hands dangling over their knees. Or you know they'll lean against a wall with one foot, or uh, with a ha- with a hat, looking just over the rim of a hat. Like it's a like it's a very very you know throwaway comment to make, but it does lend itself, especially when it comes to character, lend itself to a very very you know it's a very I don't know. I'm saying the same things over and over again. A very very t- texture to it. Like you feel like you you're in the scene, and you feel like you know where it's going. You feel like I've seen this before. Mm. You know, especially something I we've spoken about, Taxi Driver. You know, we've all seen city late night city streets covered with rain, but it it grips you because you know exactly what to expect, and then, but of course, you don't know what to expect because you trust something completely different will happen in a movie like Taxi Driver. Different things do happen, but um, yeah, I definitely did draw on that the cinema cinema in that regard.
0: Yeah. Mm. So let's let's move on to to your writing. So did you start with short stories, or did you do what? Many of us do, which is oh, I'm going to write a novel. Yes, easy. I'll go oh, straight yes. into a novel.
1: Oh yes, yes. And uh, when I came out of high school, I had the brilliant idea of writing, uh, taking a page out of George R. R. Martin's book and writing the equivalent of Game of Thrones. Brilliant. Uh, not in terms of themes, of course, um, <laughs> but in terms of like you know the big sprawling cast. We're going to have 20 peer views. I'm going to have them a different end of the universe. They're going <laughs> to slowly go together. You know, we're going to have. Alternating POV's within each scene, you know, so they're all slow. So it's going to be like t- lots of tiny rivers all flowing into one tributary, all flowing to the same ocean. Uh, that was interesting experiment. <laughs> uh, I, don't think, I shudder every time I think about how many agents I sent that book to, and uh, I'm sure by now they have a voodoo doll with named Jeremy on the desk. And every time I think about it, they just stick one more pin in it because um, that's kind of what I want to do when I think about that book. Uh, no, I, I did that. And then I wrote a, a young adult sci-fi book, which got, that did get interest from some agents, but got shot down in the end, as it should have. Um, but no, I started writing short stories because I thought, you know, it's just, it's not much of a risk, you know, a 4,000-word story, story, a 5,000-word story. It's nowhere near as big as taking a 100,000-word yeah. story. Yeah. and can get it done if it doesn't sell, great. And I so I started doing that, and I started selling more and more. I sold to I sold my first when I was eighteen. I sold my first professional story to Nature magazine when I was nineteen. Um, and so I started basically building up a slow body of work, slow bibliography. And I realized, okay, I can actually do this. Like it's possible. I can write words. <laughs> I can get published. People can give me money for it. Mm-hmm. And you know, I got contributor copy sent to the house and everything, and it was great. Uh, but it got to some point though that I realized I'm actually not getting into the places I want to get into. And then I started reading some of the stories that they were publishing and I'm like, yeah, that's not really the sort of stuff I want to write. And I don't see that sort of stuff being transferring to novel form. It's great as a short story. It's a bit of experimental. It's a bit different, but a that's I don't really see that teach me to be a better novelist, and it's not really the sort of stuff I want to write anyway. And so, if I need to write this to be published, it's kind of a mute point. And you know, I thought, you know, you write every story you write, if it even if it's ten thousand words, um, you know, every t- every single new story you write, you still have to go through that same process of sending it out yes. and getting a rejection. you get it accepted, that's great, but that's one story, you know, especially if it's in a small venue. And so I, I kind of kind of came full circle, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go back to novels. Uh, you know, it's 80,000, 90,000-word novel. It's not that big of a leap, and I've got a novel at the end. So I started doing that, and I wrote that YA fantasy that I talked about at the um, before, and I got about halfway into it and I realized I actually hate fantasy. I never want to write it again. <laughs> I despise the genre, and I stopped reading it fantasy for three years. Wow. That, really? Yeah, I stopped reading it. It wasn't until Blackwing came out and I read Blackwing again that I actually got back into fantasy. Oh. It was that detrimental. Oof. And so afterwards I, got, I was burnt out so badly by the end. And I'm like, okay, I finished university now. Do I just want to enter you know, part-time, full-time work? Or I just want to take one more crack at it. And I did. And so I just wrote whatever I wanted to write I wrote a murder mystery set in space mm-hmm. and I sent it out to agents. And what do you know? A year later, John Gerald picked it up. <laughs> so I did, in between that, I did start writing Stormblood, but that novel didn't sell. But I did, that's how I did get John as an agent,
0: uh, was writing the book and sending it out. But um, yeah. So the first so, book you sent to John wasn't Stormblood, it was something no, else. No, it was something else. But he was interested enough to keep talking to you and say, there's something here. In the, the other novel, yeah. Hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, it got he got um, it got some interesting rejections from certain publishers, but no, it was it, it was lacking. I think it was lacking that that spark that yeah. you sometimes that ineffable t- intangible spark that you kind of need to get ahead. Yeah, and so I'm I'm in re- I am happy to have that insight to be able to go back and say, okay, I tried. It had some good points, but it was flawed here's how I can do better. I think that's a very healthy thing to do. Um, unless, of course, you're a perfectionist and everything you write, is, it turns out to be gold. But uh,
0: nope. you're a rich man indeed, <laughs> if, you, if that is the case. We've all got trunk novels. It took me a lot of time and uh, quite a few novels before <laughs> I got my agent. So, you know, it takes... it. I think the, from talking to lots of other authors, the average is anywhere between two and ten years from... Wow. Writing novels and sending them out to get them picked up. It kind of varies. Some people get it to, you know, second book, third book, occasionally their first book. Some take a yeah, lot. Yeah, I know some people got the
1: first book as well, which is insane. Um, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I barely count the first novel I wrote because I made so many mistakes uh, and made, did such an error. Like, I knew nothing about publishing whatsoever and about how it's done. Like, oh no, you can't be George Aaron Martin and write 20 POVs. <laughs> Uh, with characters who have literally an opposite end of the galaxy and don't meet for another book three in the series, mm. you can't do that. Um, <laughs> and so I think that's kind of why I started eventually writing first person because I'm like I cannot be bothered doing this mental gymnastics anymore. I'm just going to write one character. Bang, we're stuck in his head. That's it.
0: it make give myself a lot less chance of getting a heart attack. Um, I, so, yeah. I kind of think when I, when I first started writing, there wasn't as much information out there as there is now because the internet didn't really exist to the same degree it did now. But now there's so much information. But do you still think you had to write that first book and get it wrong to learn what worked and didn't for you? Or did you just need to have done more reading? Because there's almost too much information now. You don't know where to start sometimes. Like someone who's going, right, I want to get into writing fantasy and then they're going okay, I've read 50, books. Now, what do I do? Where do I start? Whereas before there wasn't anything. You actually can kind of just go to events and listen to people and they tell you how to do it, or at least try and give you some clues. And then you just go away and try it and try you know experiment. Um, with me,
1: I think it was a little bit of both. I think I should have diversified my reading a little bit more, right. seeing what debut novelists were doing, what new people were doing, what the latest books were offering. And I, Think that's applicable to everyone? I honestly don't think you can be reading, you know, books in the 1920s and trying to emulate that and trying to get it published in a modern audience. Because um, mm. again, like you're not going to be selling your books to people from the 1920s. You're going to be selling it to people from now. And so, what are people wanting now? What's what's the level of publishing at now? And so, being able to be aware of that, I think it's definitely a good thing. Um, but I also think. Yeah, I did need to learn a little bit more about publishing and learn that there are certain unspoken rules of like you can and cannot do or things that you will make harder for yourself, like having a book with 10, 20 POVs in it <laughs> um, and that sort of thing. But no, being I think that, I, that was definitely a very big mistake. But, you know, at the end of the day, I guess I had fun doing it. Mm. And in my na- naivety, I
0: learned a lot, a lot what not to do. So I guess that's as good a lesson as any, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Because some people make mistakes because they think they can do anything and break the rules. And it's like, well, well, so and so did it and go, yeah. They did 20 years of normal of of more I wouldn't say normal, but more regular books to build a name to then be able to break yeah. the rules. Sometimes you can't yeah. just come in and break the rules straight away. It's it's really rare that any Author can do that and get away. with Yeah, but what? Ha- what about House of Leaves, Stephen? House of Leaves, they can do that. I can do it. <laughs> they did it. Like
1: it's, it's. I find it endless fascination that pe- so many people in places like Reddit will look at the absolute, you know, n- worst examples and use them as, you know, the exception to the rule. And as they, if they have the exception to the rule, I go, I will be too. Never mind the hundreds of thousands of people who have tried and failed and fallen by the wayside in the meantime, yep. you know, it's a complete fluke that Chuck Palahniuk was able to write, wrote Fight Club intentionally darker than the novel that got rejected for being darker because he wanted to annoy his publisher by basically writing a darker book. It's, you know, it's, it's not an accident that George Aaron Martin is able to write a book with 20 POVs because he won a Hugo award and he's been published for 30 years yep. and he was a writer on the Twilight Zone. It's no, you know, it's, yeah, the context is important. You know, you do have to be able to understand that you're not you're unique in this case. There's plenty of other people trying to write, mm-hmm. um, but I think that being able to look at what people are doing now and see what's being published co- contempor- in for contemporary readers is a really good thing. And yeah, it's it's again, it's I find it interesting that a lot of people look at the absolute exceptions to the rule and say, well, you know, Erickson did this. Fifteen book series, so I can too. And if I can't, and if I can't get it published, it's because of gatekeepers and rah rah rah. And um, uh, oh
0: yeah, don't get me started on that. The oh, I
1: will get started. I've got B. I'll get started. Oh, on that. okay, like, like,
0: okay, that's fine. Good. Thing is, I i've I've said this before on, on on two other things. there are certain things that in the future i'm probably going to self publish because they're just they're not suitable or they're quite niche, but i'm still interested in pursuing them so I have nothing against self publishing but one of the criticisms, like you just said, people are saying, well, you can't get a normal book deal and you can 't get an agent there 's too many gatekeepers, and you have to know someone in the industry, and that yeah. drives me absolutely crazy because. It's such nonsense. It's such a lie. There again, it's disinformation on the internet. It's fake news Absolutely. that neither of us and hundreds of other authors that I've spoken to, none of them had contacts in the industry. The only thing they w- we were judged on was the work.
1: I wrote a book,
0: and that was what I was judged on. You wrote a book, you sent out a bunch of agents, you got rejected. I did. I got rejected for many books, and it was until the right book landed on the right desk at the right time. I could have gone, well, as gatekeepers, I'm going to self-publish it, therefore, because my book is quality. It wasn't. It was shit, the first few. Like you. What about first books? I didn't know. I didn't know. I, I started writing my first one when I was 19, as part of my A-levels, and then I wrote that, that as the first book. And it was, it was so good, I wrote the sequel whilst I was submitting sending out the first book because it was blatantly going to get picked up, so I was going to do the trilogy. So I wrote the second book and, it, and finished it. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah,
1: it's, it's, it's interesting. I did a Reddit AMA a P, talking about how I got published, right. and this one guy kept insisting how did you get an agent? You must have known him. You must have had contacts in the industry. And I said, "No, I didn't." I sure. sent it to him. He picked it up. He refused to believe me. I must have had something. I must have had it in. With, I must have had it in with a short story editor. How did I get it in with a short story editor? I sent it to him. No, you didn't. You must have <laughs> known him through uh, through friends or family. You must have. Never mind that I'm on the other side of the world between me and my publisher. Mm-hmm. I just refused to admit that's. Like, it was every other possibility. He was breaking his spine, bending over backwards to tell me how I, the my in. And I think that it's deni- It's a form of denial. Yes. That, you know, they wrote a book that for whatever reason was rejected. All of us were. And so it couldn't have been because it was not quality. It couldn't have been because you made a mistake in either the query, the synopsis, the pitching, the first chapter anything. It yep. had to be because gatekeeping. It had to be because everyone else has some sort of, in or you know a, is able to you know bribe or has some sort of the equivalent of publishing inside a trading and knows when the right time to strike or something or something ludicrous like that and at the end of the day it is simply not true it's still a business they need you know for all intents and purposes publishing still needs to make money and still needs to have yeah. books that people yeah. want to buy and so books get, do get judged by not only the quality but their saleability. And so there are people for, who, for whatever reason, have been rejected. Maybe they, the publisher just picked something up that was identical. Who knows? And yet, no, it has to be because of gatekeepers and I'm just going to self-publish and I'm not going to touch any of this trad publishing, you know, pleb, plebeian stuff. It's not for me. It's, uh, and, you know, if you want to self-publish, absolutely go ahead and do it if that's right for you. No one should be able to tell you what you can and cannot do. It's your book. It's your career. Um, but it just drives me up the wall. That it's so much disinformation, and it's it's ludicrous because so many people know this is wrong, so many people know this is incorrect, yeah. you know authors like you and me, we let became to this point that we are because of a mountain pile of bad words. You know, I learned partially when I was an editor, I read thousands and thousands of stories, and I knew if I was grabbed or not by the first page, if I thought an ending. Uh, nailed it or not. That's the experience that got me there. And I th- honestly I think it's partially people don't want to go make that trouble. They don't want to become better. They don't want to get that <clears throat> experience. They just want to write out the gate. And if it's not accepted then too bad. They don't want to m- interrogate their own writing and say, okay, this isn't great. How can I make it better?
0: Yeah. You know, yeah. and that,
1: I'm, a, I'm doing teaching as well now. So I've, I've done a few creative writing workshops and that's what I tell all my students. I tell them, make sure you think critically about your work. Self-assess, can this be better? That is your first guide to getting better. You know, if you don't do this, you probably won't ever get better. So, yeah, that's my mini, mild, censored, <laughs> filtered, <laughs> condensed version of my rant.
0: <laughs> I, I have Thank a similar rant. Guys. I have a similar rant too, yeah, because it it just frustrates me. So let's let's move away from that. So, Stormblood, which you worked with John Jow, how long did you work on it before he said it was ready? Because I I spent a year working with my agent on my first book before she said you know doing revisions back and forth before she said okay now it's ready to go to publishers. How long did you work on it for? Um, I
1: took me six months to write. Then he it took me a few months more to edit. It was actually a very quick process between me starting it and me getting sent out to publishers. It was a year. I think it was a year's time. Okay. Actually, we did nothing like actually, like actually putting page on chapter one and on editors desks. Yeah. Um. He, he, John Jarrell is not much of an editing agent. He firmly believes that a book's vision needs to be, is the authors. Um. But so the majority of my editing was done with Gillian Redfern, my editor, and she, is absolutely brilliant. She basically, um, it, I actually initially got rejected for this book. Actually, I got a rejection from Galantz. Interesting. Um, okay. Yeah, they came. Yeah, this is a bit of an interesting story, but they really? came back to me. So I get there. I get a, I've had a really rough Thursday. I've had a really rough day and I sit down and open the email and the, this, 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 knowledge that glance is reading my book and Jillian's taking it to the next final level. I'm just anxiety. I can barely sleep. I get the email and I basically come to terms with the fact that it's a rejection and I feel like melting. And then I look at the end, but, but, <laughs> but. if Jeremy would be willing to revise the first chapter again and make the character a little more clearer and flesh out the plot a little bit more, um, we'd be willing to take another look. I can't promise anything. I can't promise anything, of course, but I would be willing to take another look. Would you be interested in doing this? Uh, Well, is the Pope Catholic? Uh, (laughs) So after I scraped my brains off the wall, me and John Gerald talked about it, and so we, you know, agreed the Pope is Catholic, and so let's go ahead with this. I got Gillian Redfern without having signed the contract on the book, yep. edited the first hundred pages, line edited at them. Wow. Get, basically took the whole two chapters apart and dissected it and gave me a five-page essay on the first chapter and what she think could have been improved and her overall thoughts and where I could needed to go from there and to wow. me to have a bit of a think about it. I asked my agent how often this has happened. He said he's been in publishing for thirty years; it mm-hmm. has not happened once. Yeah, and keep in mind, John Gerald has worked with, discovered Ian M. Banks and Robert Jordan and Guy G- and edited Guy Gavriel Kay. Yes, and all these people, like he bid for Game of Thrones. He knows his stuff. He has not seen it happen once. It was all because of my connections, of course. <laughs> my, <all> my. <laughs> Only I have. Only me. Um, yeah, the Reddit the guy, the random Ryan guy on Reddit out at me. <laughs> um, yeah. And so I basically, I was in, went going to Poland at the time for a family holiday. And this was actually just before nine worlds, um, 2018. And so I took my laptop with me, my editing notes with me. And like, even mind there were a hundred pages to the first hundred pages. And I had to rewrite basically the first chapter. Yeah. Um, you know, long story short, the, the original draft of the novel starts with the main character running away from a heist gone sour. In the published version, there's about 10 pages of him leading up to the heist and then doing it. So it was thoroughly rewritten. And wow. the second chapter following that, the exposition and world building was thoroughly rewritten. Um, so it was a lot of jigsawing pieces around and maneuvering it. And so we get to Paul and in our flat that we have there, but there was no furniture. God. There was no desk. There was like, no, We it was unlived in. We just oh. bought it. So like my dad just works. My dad's from Poland and family there. And so it was like, we, there was no furniture. So we had to go to Ikea and get all the furniture. And so I'm sitting there sweating in 35 degree Polish summer heat trying to put together this Ikea table so I can <laughs> do my chair, so I can do my edits. And then I finally get it done. And then my dad's like, hey, Jeremy, do you want me to go to the bar? You know, they've got, it, Poland is ridiculously cheap, alcohol and vodka. And I'm like, no, I have to work on my edits. She's giving me this one chance. I can't blow it. I have to impress Jillian. She's Joe job, editor. I can't <laughs> blow it. And uh, so I basically did that. It took me three weeks to rewrite the first chapter alone. Um, but I ended up doing it. And he, John edited further again. And then I got sent off to Jillian and... Few months passed. She, you know, married Joe Hill, as you do, and um, and she read it on. She was at like at when I think she was um, on her honeymoon at the time, but she was still typing up notes and suggested edits for me and that sort of thing. <laughs> and again, this is all without having signed the contract. Yeah, you know, she has gone uh, absolutely above and beyond the call of duty to make it happen. Mm. And you know, we know how it ends. But eventually, I got the uh, the offer to uh, to buy it. But yeah, it was quite an interesting experience. It took basically the whole year to happen. But without that second chance, I don't know where I'd be or what would have happened to it. But no, it, and it definitely improved the book. There was the first chapter was definitely flawed. It was over edited and over polished to the point of where it was just basically like going to a buffet and getting fifty things on your tiny things on your plate. Right. To the point where you can't actually taste anything. It's just like when you, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but so it definitely got me, allowed me to breathe the chapter to breathe a little bit more, and it got me to also see, you know, what her vision of the book thought was as well. And it was definitely on par. You know, she wasn't actually like saying, you know, completely radically change it. I mean, I probably would have done so anyway. Um, but to get to get in, but no, it definitely has basically
0: it's still the same essence that i wrote it in yeah yeah that's fair enough I, I think i think one of the worst questions you can ask any writer and i hate this question is you know where do you get your ideas because it's like but with that in mind do you, can you pinpoint what some of the influences were on stoneblood because when i'm when i go back and look it's not it's not necessarily what i've been reading it could even be what was in the news or What I'd been doing or working on—that's you know not writing—or can you like can you pinpoint anything that fed into this novel? Because doesn't your main character essentially suffer with sort of PTSD? Yeah. So there's some overlap between between you and me because my new book that's coming out—the main character is the same thing—and I've gone back and thought about it and realized I'd met some people, I'd watched some programs, I'd read some books about that, and that's what fed into it. But it wasn't—I didn't consciously know. Until later and afterwards, I thought about it and went, oh, that's what I was doing nine, ten months ago. Yeah.
1: Um, do you mean
0: when I started writing or during the time I was writing it? Before you, well, no, we, yeah, when you were writing it, can you think about um, what fed into it? Um, not necessarily. I think there is partially
1: in the book a bit of like, criticisms about um, you know, news and, you know, knee jerk journalism and de- <laughs> people deliberately fake deliberately misrepresenting the truth. Uh, you know, funny, in funny mob-, wow. mob mentality and m- medieval <laughs> mob justice that we see on the delightful places that is the delightful, delightful hellscapes of the social media these days. Mm-hmm. And I don't really think I need to explain where that would have come from. Um, yeah, there's definitely a, like a seething hatred of, of you know, of censorship and misrepresenting the truth and obscuring facts. And um, you know, it's not a huge part of the novel, but it is definitely in there. Yes. Um, but there's one other thing that is more predominant in the novel is anger. And I don't really look it. I'm sure I look like a very sweet, mild-tempered person. But when I get angry, like there's a volcan- volcano erupts somewhere out in space. And the planet goes supernova. And um, I'd gone through something when I was editing this book, not writing it. When I was editing this book, I'd gone through something, injustice with, with some other people involved. And it had made me so angry that one day I went blind. I actually couldn't see. Right. I'm not, I actually like, couldn't walk. My legs was like, I couldn't actually physically walk. And my, I started seeing spots. I was so absolutely outraged. Like, the wall, I'm not even going to go into the, like, the walls were probably peeling every time I am murmured a word under my breath. Like, I'm not even going to get started. I'm still apologizing to my parents for the words I used that day to describe <laughs> <it>. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me. St- like, w- your eyes, your ears will start shooting blood if I start going into it. Anyway, it's all sorted out now, but, like, the anger, anger at injustice and anger at, incompetence and laziness and other people's deliberate, deliberate manipulation. That's something I've always been angry at. Um, you know, I went to a very difficult when I I lived in Austria for three years and I was the, I lived, went to a, um, school there and I was about 13, 14. And let's just say Austria is a little bit backwards when it comes to foreigners. Right. And this was a village school. They didn't really like other people for people from other States. I was Australian, half Polish, half Lebanese. And I, um, so that was an interesting experience. And it just, the way that I, I remember I got treated, and some of the other students, you know, the Turkish kids and the um, Spanish kids and some of the Swedish kids got treated, it just made me outraged. And so that kind of, that's where I kind of noticed it at first. Yeah. But, um, but this other experience that I got when I was editing it, like that, 100% fed into it and and not deliberately like I don't think it was deliberate, but it definitely was subconscious and it was definitely filtering in there and I do absolutely remember being angry at what other people were doing and like absolute not like you know like passive aggressive you yeah. know being able yeah. to like slyly slip a few words here a few words there and just cause like people to become wrecks like, that just made, and then it happened to someone else that I knew, and it just made me furious. So I just poured it into this book, but it was definitely already in this book. Mm. And, um, you know, the, and so I like the disrespect for, um, not disrespect, but I think like disregarding people, authority of people who mean you harm. Yep. Like, you know, yep. like, you know, we've all had that school teacher who we know really doesn't like us, but we kind of have to do what she says anyway. Um, my, my mom's a school teacher, so it's not her. She's great. I was homeschooled, so that's where it comes in. But um, no, it was not her. But um, yeah, it's that sort of attitude. I think that definitely, definitely fit in. Um, Loyalty to friends, I think, is probably another thing because I've, you know, I think I had as well... Actually, I don't think it was that conscious um, as the anger was, but like I had if something happened to a friend of mine and I really stuck by him during it and we got to know each other a lot better during that time. And so friendship plays a big part in in that book. And so I've never had a huge circle of friends. Like I couldn't pinpoint, you know, 30 people that I know to get up for a party, but I do know about seven or eight or nine people that I know really, really, really well yes. who will, you know, I call them up and they'll be, they'll hang out with me or they'll be right. Me or listen to me, but I've never had that huge circle of friends. And I think I've been a bit uncomfortable in huge crowds anyway, when it comes to, you know, I, I'm always a guy at parties who's like, I, I'm sick of this noise. I'm just going to go, I'm sick of this loud music. I'm just going to go with a beer and sit quietly somewhere for like 20 minutes. Um, and so I think that definitely fed into the book as well. I mean, it is hard because so much of what you're writing is subconscious or mm-hmm. not quite deliberate. You just write about it because it's intuitive. Um, so it's a bit hard to pinpoint, but that I can definitely get a feel for. Um, but, yeah, yeah, so that, that's where you have it okay
0: uh, anger and trauma anger and trauma and friendship basically because sometimes the the theme i you know i write a book i write a story and i don't know what the theme is until it's done or i have someone else read it and they say well, it was blatantly about this and i step back and go wait wait oh no yeah you, you're, you're right and i don't always know but somewhere in the back of my head i'm working stuff yeah. out i'm working out on the page <laughs> Um, um, expunging emotions. Um, it's quite cathartic sometimes. Yeah, very cathartic.
1: I mean, that's why people do write most of the time. But um, mm. yeah, I, another thing that I think would be um, the main character was like in this book. He's half Japanese, half Russian, and I'm, as I said, I'm got a mixed background. But it doesn't feed into the book at all in terms of themes. It's not really a part of the book. It's not about who the character is. He just is. And that's something I've always felt strongly. I mean, that's why I loved Altar Carpenter because the main character is half Japanese. Yep. But it, it, it's important to his character, his personality, but it plays absolutely no impact in the way people, um, the way he views himself. It's He's not self-loathing. It's not about him discovering his identity or anything like that, that most people probably don't, the majority of people percentage-wise don't go through. Yeah, uh, He just is. And so that's what I loved about it. And so that definitely fed in. Um, definitely fit in as well. Although like, you know, the mix the mix of cultures, like, you know, this book takes place on an asteroid where you've got people from all walks of lives. You've got, you know, you've got the Chinatown, you've got beach, beach side places. You've got, you know, 1920s themed uh, boardwalks. You've got, you know, d- levels where there's uh, occupied mainly by aliens. And that's always been, my life has always been going through all these different, uh, pl- places that's very multicultural and growing up in a very multicultural, mm. uh, you know, place like where I live, you know, is a very multicultural place. I'm 10 minutes away from the center of Sydney where you can get food from 20 different countries in, um, in five different, within five minutes walking distance. And so that definitely fit in a lot to what I was writing. I mean, not again, not deliberately, but it just, that's what I knew. And so I wanted, I wrote
0: from what I knew this is it it's the same thing i i i I love seeing characters that are interesting and diverse that have mixed backgrounds and different come from different places as long as that's just a part of who they are and it's not the story 100%. because I'm the same as you I've got mixed parents so my my dad's from Iran my mum's from England and that's i um so you know i've I've sit there again, my, some of my characters, I'm sure have these things in there, but it's not about them, as you said, finding themselves or discovering who they are. It's like, you know, that's just part of the thing. And like my, my cousin, she lives in, um, I think she's in Sydney actually as well. So such as so different experience from her coming from one side of the world and going living there. And it'll be, but there again, she can go and, if she really wants some food from as close to home as she can, she can go to a restaurant in in Sydney and uh, and enjoy it. And why not? And but that's not you know that's not what it's about. It's just part of the character, and I think that's really important. Um, but Stephen does. Don't you in the middle of the night sit there wringing your hands
1: about whether you you look more one or the other and where do you sit because you obviously can't be what both. Because someone on Tumblr said, you know. This is how race works. You know, don't you just sit and agonize over it for hours and don't you just want to put that into the, shoehorn that into the book?
0: I'm a 43 year old man, Jeremy.
1: (laughs) I haven't got time for that shit. I haven't got time for that shit. (laughs) Yeah, it just, it just drives me crazy. Anytime you see a character and this is another rant, a lot shorter this time, character in, you know, fiction and their mix or they've got a background that's, Non Anglo-Saxon uh, American or whatever, mm. and so much of the time, it's about them finding themselves. or their heritage is part of the intrinsically part of their personality or their character arc, and they have to balance that out or walk both pathways. And there are some books where that is the point, and that's totally different. Yes, but that shouldn't be the only point. I mean, you know, th- I mean, that's l- that's ludicrous. You're literally distilling people down to how they look, and that's not how the real world works. Um, and I don't think it's that interesting either. Or points aside. Mm. Um, no, but I do. I do find that it does. So I was really determined to have a main character who was these two things and had these had a first name that was Russian and a last name that was Japanese, and yet it did not affect one iota of his how he felt about himself. You know, he just was. He made no apologies for it. This is just the way I am. So what? Um,
0: yeah. Yeah. So, where are you with the series now? Obviously, book one is is out. I, I suspect book two is completely done and edited and finished for now. Or is it? Or are you, are you working on two or three? Which which what are you working on at the moment? Um, book
1: two is got delayed because of time and unforeseen circumstances, by which I mean I completely botched it and had to rewrite sixty to seventy percent of it. Um, it got delayed, and so I'm still working on the edits now. Right, as I said, like I am. I, it was not edited. It was rewritten. Like, I don't think in the first act or third act there's anything that is similar to what was on originally there, and which is more common than I thought actually doing that, but it needed to be. But it is definitely getting there. It is slowly inching forward. I'm just trying to focus on doing the big stuff. You know, you can be tied up with editing a paragraph to your fingers bleed, but you have to take a step back and take look, separate the trees from the forest and say, okay, this this tone isn't really working with what the book is telling me it needs to be, or this character, you know, the, this character arc needs to be 50 pages earlier, you know, being able to look back and say, okay, where are the big pieces? Where do they need to be shifted? And so I'm, I'm focusing on that, but pretty much everything else is in place and I'm, I'm getting, it's getting there. Um, uh, delivery is late February. So I'm working on getting it done by then. But, and then I'm going to start working pretty much immediately on book three. Uh, and with a few exceptions, I don't really know what I'm going to do. I know the ending. I know the general arc of some of the characters and I know the general conflicts that are going on, but I don't have a solid idea of chapter by chapter intimate knowledge as uh, some authors may. I, I don't work like that. I, I can't really think in trilogies or book series like that. I know there are some people who... You know, I know this one author who's planning a book four books, a trilogy or four book series, so a twelve book series total, and how the character arc generally changes throughout all of them. I'm like, mate, come on! I I'm trouble. I have trouble outlining acts. How you? Th- oh, you're literally planning decades ahead. <laughs> no, I, I can't do that. I can't do that. Maybe I'm just really stupid, but I just I cannot wrap my head around a scope that big. I've got to focus on the. Minutia and make
0: make that good first. Do you have so, other ideas, kind of clamouring for attention, and you you have to kind of go away, put them off to one side? Or, or uh, Lamb's always
1: screaming, Stephen. Always <laughs> screaming. Um, no, no, I do. I've always, for some reason, whenever I get now that I actually have a contract and it's my job to sit down and write this. Yes, I'm like actually I would like to be writing this too, uh, or I'd rather be doing something else. <laughs> it's it's interesting, yeah. um, but no, I I do I don't think I'm raring to write them Or Really, really eager to get into them, but I've always been interested in exploring them. I mean, the novelty wear, will wear off. Yeah, I mean, it has it always does at some point. But um, I think what I kind of do miss is the naivety and the the feeling of um, the the freeness that so you've got the blank page, fresh universe, fresh character. You can go anywhere. But yeah. with a with a series uh, or a book, you've got, you know, you have character arcs. So you can't just, you can't just abandon them. These characters, that you spent two books building up. You can't just leave these whole plots that hanging. Um, you know, you, you do actually have to follow up on them and you do have to tie them back in somehow. And so you've got to follow, you've got to fulfill your promises. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is, is a different matter. But I, I think I do miss that. And I am, I've been asked to write a few short stories for a few anthologies and I can get a bit of that freedom there, but for the most part, it's pretty much I'm making myself focus on this.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's that thing of, I I find it doesn't change. It's the idea next, the next idea always sounds the most exciting, but I've come to realize it isn't actually that it's because the discovery phase, as you said, because you're so free and there are no rules you can go anywhere when you sit down to actually do the work you realize yeah there's still six nine twelve months of work that's not crawling but it's a lot slower process whereas when you're just daydreaming and you spend two hours wondering and you can go anywhere and do anything that sounds brilliant then like now i have to turn that into a reality that's actually going to take me months so when you sit down to start working on it you're like okay, this, this I have to do this right, which therefore you have to do it carefully, which means you have to take time. Whereas with daydream. you can just, I can go there, I can do this, I can do that. There's no consequences. There's no balance. There's no checks and editing. There's no agent going, this makes no sense. Do it again. <laughs> so you mentioned that you worked on short stories and you'd edited lots of short stories. Tell me about working on Starship Sofa and working with some of these really big authors like, Harlan Ellison, come on! Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So basically, at Starship Surfer, I was the main fiction editor and audio producer. So basically, for six years, um, every single story that we played on the podcast, with a few exceptions, was picked, edited, uh, produced, sent off to narrators, uh, sought, edited further, and slotted into the uh, the podcast, the queue. Yeah, all of that was done by me. Uh, towards the tail end, I had a few slush readers, uh, and I had a a few years into it. I had an assistant editor and then I got another one. And then I got, you know, a few slush readers and I had a few webmasters, but I was the guy pretty much who made the decisions either way. And I was the one who read all the slush, you know, most of the slush that got passed up and deciding, okay, do we want to publish or write this? But my main job, uh, was going to, the big authors and contacting them and saying, can we please buy the right steel story? Something that included George R. Martin. I think he was really early on, like within a year, less than a year of me starting it. I got him. Uh, we got one of his shorts, resurrected one of his old short stories that had never been online. It was printed in published in the seventies wow. uh, and never came online. The men of Greywater station. And he blogged about it, which was really nice. And uh, we got, we got a lot of attention. We, I think, we had 300,000 downloads and counting uh, last time I checked. Nice. Um, yeah, William Gibson I got for episode 400, I think. Uh, for episode 500, it was Harlan Ellison. And to get him, I had to handwrite him a letter and post it all really? the way to really? LA. Yeah. I still got a picture of me,
0: of me actually sending it off. <laughs> yeah. Is that because he wouldn't respond to email or he didn't have email he didn't
1: have email i don't think he had it. he didn't have a website he had nothing
0: wow there was
1: no way to contact him and so at the end his susan else and his wife got into contact with me emailed me and said yeah we're interested and uh could you give us a call to discuss it further and i'm like oh boy uh <laughs> and so I did and i expected to be talking to a secretary or some or one of his m- m- countless assistants yeah and and I call the phone, it adds on a, it's on a Friday night in the US, in Saturday morning here. First answers in the first ring and a grumpy old man's on the other end and <laughs> launches into it immediately. I said, oh, I'm just calling about um, buying the story, uh, how interesting a tiny man and reprinting it on our podcast. Oh, yeah, about that. And he does no introduction, no <laughs> straight into it. He doesn't know who I am, straight into it. And it's Harlan Ellison
0: once
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was talking to him about him, and here's the thing: I actually got it wrong—the contract wrong. We were going to pay him double what we actually said we were going to. We, we because it's Harlan Ellison. I didn't get it right. but I printed half the half amount. Oops. To be fair, it wasn't my fault. The, my editor told me by the time it was already. On the plane being shipped, so it's not my fault. Uh, and then I said to him, "I'm sorry, that's a mistake. We're actually paying you double what we said." And he said to me, and these are the exact words: "Yeah, the uh, the, the the money doesn't concern me, but the what I'm interested in here is the morality morality clause. You know, I don't want in 200 years some nit, some some halfwit with a stutter to drag my old dig up my old rotting bones." and dragged him in front of court in 200 years because he got triggered by the word and. I had those exact words. I am not joking. Yeah.
0: I'm not surprised.
1: I said to him in 200 years, we'll forget that far. And he actually laughed. (laughs) But uh, so I said that we can take it out and um, we can adjust it. And we had a bit of back and forth. And he said, you know, how are you going to do the story? Because the story actually has two endings. And I said, um, I said no. We'll just get the narrator to recall both, and we'll just say this is the end. The we'll just have both endings up there, and he was pretty satisfied. And we talked about what I was going to do, who I was, was going to hire, and I'm sweating bullets. Like it's Harlan and Ellison, you know, it's it's him. And so like we talked about it back and forth, and he said, "Where are you calling from?" I said, "Australia." He said, "Oh yeah, Australia. I really like that place, but the people are awful and it's too hot." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the, I like the, the animals are cute though. Of course, of course. Of course. <laughs> of course, and so we started talking, and then I said, Oh, I, I said to him, you know, I was very professional the whole time, but then towards the end, I said, Oh, mate, you know, I'm really big fan of yours, and I really like your stories, and really big honor to be talking to you, sir. I actually called him, sir, the whole time. Yeah, of course. Of course. i into flames if I don't, <laughs> uh, even now. And he's like, Oh, thanks, kiddo, you're all right. You're all right. <laughs> and, uh, and then afterwards, he said, I am not joking. And he said, a one last thing, Jeremy. And I'm like, yes, yes, Ellison, sir. You give anyone my phone number. I will, I will get this old man will come all the way down to Australia. I don't care if I'm in a wheelchair or not. I will come all the way down to Australia, murder your family and nail your dog's head to a post and stick it on your wall. Fair enough.
0: was, <laughs> <laughs> The end of the conversation. <laughs>
1: that was how I, I am not that is how Harlan <laughs> Ellison ended the conversation with me.
0: Oh man, what a legend.
1: What an absolute was, legend. It was funny because that is the only author I ever called up to talk on the phone about rights or anything like that. No one else. Everything was done by email or chat or in person mm. or with agents. That is the one and only person who I got to actually speak with on the phone and never actually got to meet. And so it's interesting that it
0: was Harlan Ellison. But uh yeah, it was quite it was quite legendary. Um, I'm that. reading I'm reading some Ellison at the moment, and oh, I can hear right. his voice so clearly. And I've watched the interviews, and the thing is, now that I'm I've been you know I've got a few novels out, and I'm reading his stuff and listening to him. I'm now thinking more about what kind of a, a writer I want to be, and what not just you know it is a, this is a cool story I'll tell it, and I can hear him, and, it, and I read a collection recently of you know I have no mouth but I'm a scream. And the be- the stories are great, but the best thing about it is all the stuff before, he talks about the book and, and the stories and what people think about them and all the stuff afterwards. And in all of that, he's saying what drives him to be a writer and what drives him to tell good stories and to push the boundaries of the genre and stuff. And do you think about that kind of stuff or is it still too early doors for you?
1: Um, I guess I do. Look, I don't really think about it precisely when I'm on the page, but I've had a lot of people... No. And I think that that actually comes, a lot of it isn't prior to writing. I don't think anyone sits down and says, I'm going to tell you this story. I mean, the adages in commercials, you watch any, turn on the TV, any commercial will tell you, you drinking doc Coke will make you appeal more, make you more appealing to members of the opposite sex. If they came out and told you that, straight up, no one would buy it because obviously A, it's ludicrous, but B, once you people are aware of that, it's kind of a an, an instinctive, no, 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 not me, not me. But you've they feed it into you subconsciously through images mm. and gradually over time, that's what you learn. And I think that comes a lot with messages in fiction as well. The most effective messages are the ones that you don't think of intuitively, that the ones that feed in, slither in, work the way in gradually over time are informed by other people's interpretation of your work. You know, I've had a lot of people in reviews and say that, the book's about you know drug abu- is about drug abuse and uh, poverty and um, in uh, institutions how it, like the drug industry how it's self perpetuating through you know v- both the victims and the drug dealers and the um, institutions that oversee it you know the the, the stuff that we all know yeah. through countless documentaries and shows and movies over the years but I never thought about that when I was writing it like I'm not writing the wire. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm not writing anything like that. It's completely the opposite, but that I've had a lot of people come up and say that, you know, it's about PTSD and war and morality, you know, are we really the good guys? And none of that was really directly um, in my mind when I sat down to write it, but it kind of, you know, worked its way in one way or another. And I do think that kind of fit where a lot of that stuff fits in. And so I, I think that I would be a lot more comfortable, like going back to your original question about what I want to be as a writer, I think I would never be the sort of person who just wrote, you know, pulpy stories and no one's saying, you know, you can't do both and you can't have a message with pulp. I mean, lots of superhero fiction does, is pulp, but still has strong underlying messages. Some more other than not, of course, but, um, you know, there's a lot to be said about something like Watchmen, uh, the latest Watchmen HBO series and that sort of thing uh, issues that they that tackles, but no, I do think that I would be interested in in dealing with those themes and dealing with you know the darker side of human nature and uh, you know addiction and um, psychology and um, mob mentality uh, and into like how people are affected by PTSD and trauma, how people are failed by systems, that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, again, none of it is directly intentional, but I do think a bit of subtext is is a good thing. And I do really think being able to take a step back and kind of interrogate your work
0: yeah. is uh, is
1: good as well. Be able to say, okay, what am I actually saying with this? What am I trying to say? And what sort of you know, if people read, consistently read my stories, what's the sort of thing they want to get out of me as a writer? Because people will subconsciously build it up. You know, I've gone to interviews and people are like, so this is X, this is a recurring work theme in your work. And I'm like, it is really. Uh, no, it's no. I, I so. But what do? You, what was it to you though? Uh, what you were saying about thinking about the sort of writer you want to be? What's it? To, what is it to you? Um,
0: so, what part you of it is exploring different themes, but also part of it for me is thinking about not doing the same kind of stories, writing something that makes me uncomfortable, because you know, I could, I could, my first book was a war book. I could, they're like you, I could write another 10 war books, but if I've done it 10 times, it might be okay. I might have got the idea right in one of them that I was trying to explore the same theme or the same notions. And in one of the 10, I got it right in my head. I felt that I achieved it. But if I do another 10, I'm not stretching myself. I'm not pushing myself. I'm not, testing myself in any way and it's not just instead of three points of view i'll have seven that will test me that's not like you with your 20 that's not that you know that is a test yes if that's what you want to do and you really want to push yourself that way but for me it's about you know what's driving me to write internally but equally how can i do something different i'm not gonna you know do something crazy with the genre or crazy with the the story but it's how can i push myself so that it's not comfortable, because some books you sit down and it's the forty seventh by the same author. You know what you're going to get. It's nice. It's fun. It's like a pair of slippers, and that's fine. If that's all they're doing, and that's all you want, great. But equally, I don't want to be that. I don't want to have written my fiftieth fantasy book and someone goes, "Oh, yeah. I know what I'm getting." Oh, this is nice. You know. So that's what it means to me. It's it's yeah. external and ter- internal.
1: Yeah, I was actually wondering if did you mean external or internal? Um, but yeah, on the internal side, like I definitely agree with that. Like, there's a famous David Bowie interview where he talks about that it's important for an artist to be a, just a little bit further out than they feel comfortable. Like, yes, it's a bit I mean, dangerous to talk about, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it's the point where you feel you know i'm fine here i always do try to push myself i always try to do something that's a little bit different can i really do this should i do this is can i pull it off can it work and i think it's important to take those risks it's important to be able to do that and in every book and i think as well that i'm not always comfortable that i either can i pull off or is this something i should be writing like what will people think if they read this <clears throat> You know, like it's 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 a really weird idea if it's strange or if it's a bit out there or if it's a bit hard to wrap your head around. But most of the time, the answer is I should, you know. And I think that it's important to really push yourself because if you don't, you are self censoring your own potential. And um, you know, especially with a lot of Ellison's stuff that he edited, a lot of that stuff was about counterculture and the new wave was about anti corporatism and stuff that was unheard of in the in a genre that was predominantly you know the golden age so-called that was a lot of it was ray guns and razors lasers that sort of thing Mm. so being able to for these riders take a step back and say how can i make this in your face different make people uncomfortable and i think that's a really good idea i mean i there's a lot of people who've actually said that um you know, I, when I was writing this book, the alien DNA in the main character, like it's intentionally gross and you know uncomfortable to read about. Like, you know, it's slithering around his up and down his spinal cord. It's sniffing in between his rib cage. It's clenching around his ribs like a snake jacked up on methamphetamine, like amphetamine, not methamphetamine. Yeah. Um, like yeah. that's a description in one of the pages. And but I can't write that for three books and nothing more. Yes. You know, I have to take a step further. I need to make it, give it an edge, give it a bent. And I think that's very important. And so I definitely am trying to assess that with every book I write in this series, especially, I mean, you don't want to be writing. I mean, you write series as well. You don't want your third book in your series to just be book one, chapter path three. I mean, yeah. it technically it is, but <clears throat> it's also part of an, its own, its own thing. It's got its own identity and it, advances in its own steps and i think that it's kind of like an anti-nostalgia uh, take because you see a lot i mean so much of our fiction these days so much of it is nostalgic so you know the obvious thing is stranger things and that's great but you'd also want to be it's self-interrogating your your own themes and your own tropes and where you're going
0: i think that's important to go out a little bit more uncomfortable than always always absolutely yeah i agree i think that's a good place to wrap up as well so so i'll put all the links down below for anyone to check out you get in contact with you on social media and stuff and as you said stormblood is out now you're working on book two but uh thanks for joining me i appreciate it and uh, thank you i'll talk to you again soon